Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike Buttonham, and I'll be one of the people who will be moderating the webinar here today. I also have a few colleagues of GFO here with me. Hi, I'm uh, Megan McKimmy, and I work in the communications department on more of our farmer-focused events. So um, I'll be here helping out with this webinar and with future ones. Hey, I'm Natalie DeMeo, and I'm the research department as the research coordinator. And Laura Ferrier, the agronomist with Grain Farmers Ontario. So thanks again to everyone for joining us here today. Uh, we're located in Guelph, Ontario, and currently we're under overcast skies. Uh, we just came out of a bit of rain here this morning. So hopefully wherever you are that you guys received a bit of rain this past week and that the crops are all looking well. So just to provide a brief uh, agenda of the hour, we're gonna speak about uh, the webinar concept from a GFO perspective, and then we're gonna jump right into Tracy, uh, speaking about some pest issues emerging in the 2018 crop, followed by some questions. And then after that, we're gonna jump right into Jake, uh, talking about soil fertility issues, and follow that by questions. So just some housekeeping items. Uh, please keep your microphones muted. We want to ensure that there is uh, no background noise. And also, if there are other colleagues of yours that may be not uh, able to attend today, there's going to be a recording that will be posted on our YouTube page at a later date. Also, uh, questions are definitely a, a large part of this and, and interaction with the speakers. So if you could please place those in the chat box uh, throughout the webinar and direct them to Megan McKimmy. She'll be the one that will be um, writing those down and corresponding back with the speaker at the end of their presentation. So just an overview. We represent uh, 28,000 farmers in the province growing corn, soybeans, wheat, oats, and barley. And um, you know our mission obviously is to help support the agriculture industry and our farmer members with new research, innovation, and uh, trying to provide information that will ultimately help their practices and, and, and their ability to produce a sustainable crop. And a quick background on these, um, a little bit about what Grain Talk is. So we've rebranded all our farmer member communications as Grain Talk. You might have seen Good in Every Grain, so that's our public outreach side of things. Um, so in the future, if you see Grain Talk, you know that's something that we're uh, sending out to our membership. So uh, at this time, what that includes is um, we are running a podcast. We've done two so far, and you can find those in your app store uh, or on iTunes if you would like to listen to those. We also have, which was previously our bottom line e-newsletter, is now the Grain Talk newsletter. Um, we'll be running more webinars. We have research days for our farmer members. So there's one coming up in Elora on July 16th, and there'll be one in Ottawa on August 16th as well as our regular market trends report. So you can find that all online at gfo.ca and click on Grain Talk. Um, so for this webinar or and the webinars to come, we will introduce the latest advancements to our farmer members as they relate to high yielding production. Um, we want your, the information to be relevant to you at any particular time and what's happening in the field. It's a forum for communication with industry level experts on particular topics of interest. And we always want further feedback from our members and CCAs on what you are really looking for and better understand what we can do with our webinars. So on that point too, with feedback, as Megan noted, we're gonna be sending out a survey to participants to gain feedback to really understand uh, whether or not you thought the webinar today was of value and particular topics that you'd be interested in seeing in future uh, webinars. So feedback's definitely important and uh, we hope that you'll be able to follow up and complete the survey. So at this time, I'm gonna turn it over to Tracy. Uh, Tracy Bowdy is the field crop entomologist with OMAFRA. Um, Tracy, if you can hear me, uh, please unmute your mic and share your screen and we'll get your presentation started. Great, thank you, Mike. Let me see if uh, everyone can see my screen. Is that a 
confirmation, Mike, at least. <laughs> I can't see your screen right now, Tracy. Okay, I um, shared it. I'll do it again. All right, we'll see if this way works. There we go. Here we that go. Like it seemed to do more. All right, Perfect. awesome. Thank you so much, right, everyone, for attending. And um, I've been asked, I'm going to cover off, I think, the details of what we need to know for Western Bean for this coming season. But I've also, hopefully, will leave time for a couple of emerging issues that are popping up in um, some of the corn and, and soybeans um, and wheat to uh, keep an eye out for. So. Um, First off, uh, let's talk about Western Bean. It's been here for now exactly 10 years. It was in June of 2008 in Lampton County that we received our first moth. And we have learned quite a lot, even though it may seem like we still have lots to learn, we have learned quite a, a lot um, since it arrived. Um, thankfully, with the collaborations I've had with um, Jocelyn Smith, Art Schaffner here at uh, Ridgetown campus, as well as Chris Defonso in Michigan and other locations. We've really finely tuned it, especially here in the Great Lakes region. So based on that research from here in Ridgetown, we've confirmed it does overwinter here in Ontario, especially in heavier or sorry, sandier soils. It can get deeper down, but even on mild winters, there's opportunities for it to overwinter in um, less ideal soils. So it is starting to become established clear across the province and actually into the Maritimes now. And uh, also based on Jocelyn's research, we've confirmed that it is resistant to the Cry1F protein. So what's in Herculex and SmartStax. So now we are only able to rely on one transgenic, the, the Viptera trait um, for control. We've also had such a successful trap network over the 10 years. We've even just last year, we had over 650 locations from Michigan, Ontario, and Quebec. And now we're also seeing Manitoba, PEI, and Nova Scotia join as well. Um, but based on that success, it helps us monitor and, and gauge when peak flight happens. And I'll talk about that shortly um, and, and allows us to get better alerts out to you. We also moved from those cheap, easy to get milk jug traps to bucket traps that are much more um, reliable and easier to use. And we've had to modify thresholds and uh, adjust our spray timings accordingly, just because it's done such a good pest here in, in the Great Lakes region, to the point that we now confirm that it is truly our primary pest of corn in the Great Lakes region. So let's talk about that. A um, lot of the work that came from other uh, U.S. states, particularly the Great Plains, Great Lake, or Great Plains, and um, Nebraska, and, and even Iowa, places like Iowa, they tend to see one peak, one flight. Um, whereas in, here in Great Lakes, we actually see it region by region progressing weekly um, towards the east. And so that really is important because some locations like down in Essex may be able to plant their crop early enough to really get their crop away from their ideal stage when the moth is peaking. Um, and, and knowing where you are and when you expect to peak really can't just be by calendar date. Um, and, and we want to be monitoring and scouting those three weeks the week before, during, and after peak to really see what's going on. So, and this, this may be a little different this year because we've been accumulating such growing degree day um, daily, but I think, um, you know, it's a good guideline to expect that somewhere between the third week of July for the most Southwest, all the way to about the second week of August, there would be peak flight happening in Ontario. Just again, to show that visually, if the graph didn't do it for you, um, it's a good indicator if, if you're in these counties when you may expect peak flight and when you really have to hone in on the ideal fields um, to look for the egg laying that's going on. So one thing that is really important is corn stage does play a big role. Western bean can only feed on tassel, pollen, silk, or kernels. So no leaf feeding whatsoever. So all the perception that you have about getting insecticide on the, fo the foliage, it's not going to have an impact. Um, and if there's no tassel at all in those, on those plants when eggs are being laid, ignore them because those larvae are going to die when they hatch if there's no tassel for them to at least start on. Um, so really focus in on only fields that have at least a tassel developing inside the whirl. 
once the tassels are spent, the pollen has been shed, they really start to prefer to lay their eggs in younger cornfields or even dry bean fields. I, we suspect there must be cues that they're getting from either the tassel or silk tissue to hone in on what fields um, they should be going to. But what we've experienced here in Ontario lately is a variable um, areas in the fields. The growth stages vary even across the same field. And so moths stick around longer than they used to. So quite literally, you can have a two or three week period of egg laying within the same field that you need to be monitoring for. Again, once, once really it's a matter of seeing the, the very early um, tassel stages up to when the tassel spent and beyond that, they're moving off into other um, fields that are, are a little later in staging to, to lay and give their young the best chance they have. They are associated with sandy soils, and when they first came, they really we really only saw heavy hot spots in those the Bothwell area and the Tilsonburg area where they had the beach sands, um, and that is allowing them to overwinter better. But if you look at other areas of the province, we do have those similar sandy soils elsewhere. This, this is allowing if larvae are present in the fall in these areas because the moths spread that far. If they find this, this soil and um, go down into it to overwinter, there's a chance of them successfully overwintering and so then carrying the population further. And, and no doubt now, this is across the province issue. It's not just the hotspot regions. And ironically, even last year, the hotspot regions in Bothwell had lower um, numbers than we usually see. The problem that we have also here in Ontario is we experience both migrant and resident populations. So storm fronts, weather fronts, no doubt are carrying them in, probably from Michigan, maybe um, Wisconsin, or maybe to the south, um, and carry them across to the Atlantic provinces now. So we, we deal with two populations, both what successfully overwintered here as well as what arrives on the storm front. So that does complicate things and that's why traps are so important to be monitoring for this pest. I really think most know how to identify this pest now, this moth, um, the bands along its wing margins and the, the very distinct um, moon and boomerang, but I also want to point out, um, pay attention to how they fold their wings over um, one another so that they're almost a, a long triangle. And that plays a role because there are some lookalikes um, that I'll, I'll get into, but also because most of us deal with it like this. This, if, if moths stay in the traps for a few days, they rub against each other and they lose their scales. So you lose the ability to identify them. I mean, this moth here certainly has some of those markings still, but you've got to instead rely on the shape of the insect and how they're folding their wings over one another. As I said, there are some lookalikes though. We occasionally catch dingy cutworm, which is almost identical, except that it doesn't have the perfect moon. Um, as well, early in the season, we catch this one, the large yellow underwing. Same sort of shape, but when you open the forewing, the move their um, front wings, their hind wings actually have that orange color to them. This is actually the winter cutworm that some may see in forages or um, marching across um, some, some of the um, pavement or snow in the winter time as caterpillars. Um, but for the most part, when we're doing pheromone trapping, the pheromone really is only enticing the western bean. The odd um, Occasional moth may fly in, but you're really looking at western bean for the most part. That's in, in the bulk of the traps. They lay their eggs on the upper leaves of the plant um, as close to the whorl or tassel as they can. So you're really looking on the, um, the underside, uh, sorry, on the, well, mostly the hairy side, but sometimes the underside of the leaf and close to the top of the plant. If silks are already present on the plant, we occasionally see them actually lay directly on the corn husk, but that's not very common. And uh, egg masses can average around 50 to 80 eggs, all the way up to 200 if they're really, the, the mum moth has been carrying a lot of eggs at once. Each individual moth only lives for a week. So you can imagine if we've got such a, 
long period of moth flight, we're getting a lot of moths coming in or emerging from the soil over time. Um, if they only live a week, we've got quite an abundant um, population over time. So how do we scout? First, put the traps up the prevailing wind side of the field, so the plume of the pheromone is blowing into the field that you are scouting for. Once you're starting to catch uh, moths in those traps, target, look at the fields nearby. Look for the fields that are at least in pre-tassel to full-tassel stage. We're recommending you scout every five to six days, and this is based on each egg mass takes about five to seven days to develop, so you will still see the previous week's eggs as well as new eggs that are being laid um, that week. And we want you to monitor this over the, the three-week period, the week prior to your ideal peak flight, um, peak flight, and then the week after peak flight. Target about 10 plants or even blitz the field, and I'll show you, put a, a face shield on and just fly through the rows looking at the upper part of the plants um, for shadows of eggs. You would count the number of plants um, that have egg masses on them and we want you to now accumulate the number of eggs over that three week period. So as I said, use the shadows to your advantage. Um, put the sun or put the row of, of corn in between you and the sun so that when you're um, scouting, you can look for actual shadows that they are leaving. Um, and other than bird poop, um, it's, it's usually um, western bean that you find um, from those shadows. And there's that face shield. Um, Chris Defonso highly recommends it. I've used it. Um, many other reps have. And it just helps you from getting um, corn rash and, and cuts in the eyes. And it allows you to go much faster through a field uh, to save you time to, to look for them. There is that progression of egg masses from when they're freshly laid and white um, all the way through until purple and then emerging. So if you scout every about five days, you will see what's newly hatching as well as potentially any others that are freshly laid that week. So you, you're getting a good idea of, of population levels in your field. The issue with going every seven days or so is that the young emerged larvae actually feed on their egg um, their eggs for the protein before moving up to the tassel to feed. So um, you may not even spot any um, presence of egg masses if they've already uh, hatched and, and left um, to go to the tassel. The impact. Um, some of the work from Jocelyn and, and previous states too, you know, can show um, anywhere from three to 15 bushels. But the real issue, it's mainly ear tip feeding, but it's the mycotoxin development that starts up because of that ear feeding. That's the real concern that we have. Um, we have seen if, if conditions are ideal, and that's the problem with it being here in the Great Lakes, they are ideal for mycotoxin development, um, dawn levels, et cetera. So that is why we've been adjusting both the thresholds and the spray timing, and, and even more so now. So I'll go into that shortly. So although Fusarium is, um, frequently does infect corn, um, any slight western bean feeding uh, does create the additional entry points for the um, Fusarium. And so they, we have seen an increased risk of dawn, but a lot comes down also to the hybrid tolerance and the environmental conditions that are um, playing a predominant role. But you know, ask your agronomists um, what your hybrids are uh, like for in terms of susceptibility to fusarium. Um, pick the ones that are tolerant um, to help you avoid uh, the real quality issue that this pest um, does. So I mentioned we've adjusted thresholds, and, and the threshold from Nebraska, the original Western Bean threshold was 8% of plants with egg masses. We lowered it to 5% when this first came, um, and it was also spray at full tassel when the majority of the egg masses are, are, have hatched. But that's not really how it's playing out here. Because we've got the prolonged um, moth flight and egg laying going on for about a two or three week period, we've adjusted things. So first, the threshold, we're modifying it to have a cumulative threshold. So if 5% of the plants in the two or three week period you've scouted have egg masses on them, 
um, then you would likely need to spray. And, and we may even eventually, and, and this is work again through Art and Jocelyn coming up, is to try and see if there's even a lower threshold that's required for fusarium susceptible varieties or hybrids. The spray timing also needs to be adjusted. We were going by the guidance to spray during pre-tassel, the full tassel stage, but it's been too early. There's still eggs being laid and the, the um, insecticides just don't have long enough residual to really have an impact. And, and that's partly because, again, these don't feed on the leaves. They're only going to feed on the tassel, but every single larva that's been placed on that plant or hatched on that plant will have to go down to the ear to survive. They can only survive on the tassel for a few days. So every knowing that every larva is going to the ear, we instead want everyone to focus their spray to when fresh silks are present and target that ear zone. So it, it does um, make us wonder if ground application is, is going to need to be required again to really hone in on that ear zone. Um, but we're just feeling like spraying the tassel. If some of these larvae are bypassing the tassel altogether because the silks are already there, they're going to go to the silks. This does lead to a perfect timing, though, because of the fresh silks are there, that you could tank mix with a triazole um, fungicide for ear mold protection. Not, not the leaf disease fungicides, but the triazoles specifically for ear mold. But don't wait until there's brown silks because then it'll be too late. You won't get at you won't get at the larvae that are there um, feeding on the silks. And really, only apply the insecticides when thresholds reached. I know some are just spraying just in case, but I think you know if we are going to see a biocontrol agent come into play in Ontario over time, we need to see some acres not being sprayed because yeah, the pest is present, but it's not reaching threshold or the timing's off because of the the crop was able to get more advanced before the pest uh, really started to peak. Um, that will help us uh, start to get something established here and, and um, have, have a bit more help on the um, natural enemy side. So just as a visual again, you're targeting your spray for those fresh silk time period and not so much the early pre-tassel or tassel stages or definitely not when the brown silks are there, um, especially if you want to also get um, the ear mold protection. There are products registered. I know a lot are using Corrigin. It's a great product, but all of these do work well and we really want to stress the need to start rotating our chemistries. If we have acre upon acre of crop being sprayed with one chemistry, this pest has shown us it can develop resistance quite quickly when introduced to just one active. Um, we are worried that we could be losing some of our products if, if we continue to only use one um, for the majority of, of the acres. And even as well, we have this in dry beans. And so that does set us up for um, potential risk. So please try and rotate year to year uh, your chemistries. Um, I encourage you all to set up traps. Um, traps should go up in June and be monitored until about mid to late August. You need one per corn field, two per dry bean field. Um, the bucket should be about four feet from the ground and checked weekly. The, the lure that we're attracting them to needs to be changed every three weeks and store your lures in the freezer. Unfortunately, because traps are only catching the males, remember we're putting the female pheromone on that lure, so they're thinking we're fooling them to think that's a female. It's leaving the females out there to who are mated and don't mind mating with other males to continue laying eggs. So really, it's only an indicator of when peak flight is, which means the majority of the moths are out in that region mating, and then shortly thereafter laying eggs. So we can't use thresholds based on trap counts, um, especially in corn. Um, so it's very important though to put these traps where you're outside of those original hotspot regions because um, some years they may not be that far um, outside of those regions. But um, it is something now that almost every corn grower needs to be uh, aware of and monitoring for. And it also helps us if, if you, um, come into the trap network, we can then get a better understanding region by region when peak flight is happening, um, when there's a number of traps out there to look at. So 
please, if you haven't joined already, go to cornpest.ca or email us at the Trap Network's email. Um, join the network and um, we will in, in return help um, set up these interactive maps so we can actually see week to week where peak is actually taking place. We do, as I mentioned, we've got resistance to the Cry1F. You do have Viptera corn um, as an option. Um, we don't feel that Viptera needs to be protected as well with an insecticide. It does still provide good control, but we are a little cautious if wall-to-wall -wall acres are now planted to Viptera, what that might mean for resistance in the future. So it's something we're going to have to keep an eye out for. And you've got tons of resources. Um, the what the Trap Network, of course, Field Crop News, that we keep um, in-field um, updates there, and as well as Twitter between myself, Jocelyn, and, and Megan Moran, we'll try and keep you aware of the Western Bean um, situation. That's on Western Bean. I just wanted to quickly take time to talk about a couple of pests that we're seeing start up. Nothing to really be aware, be alert of, but um, something to be watching for. So bean leaf beetle has been active. It overwintered surprisingly well given the um, very cold temperatures we had. We're not as worried now about what they're doing to the young crop. I think the crop is for the most part growing out of any defoliation that might be taking place, but what this overwintering population does is lay eggs in the ground and give rise to the first generation that feeds on pods. So any IP soybeans may have to be more vigilant at, at looking for this once pods are present um, to see if bean leaf beetles there. We've also had cereal leaf beetle in, in spring cereals um, be a bit of a concern um, in, in winter cereals. And so I, I say watch for it in spring cereals and make sure you protect the flag leaf stage if you start to see some feeding. Um, and then soybean aphids are starting up mainly in fungicide only fields, but um, insecticide treated soybeans will, will no longer have activity either on them. So we have revised the aphid advisor app um, new this year to um, help accommodate any um, decision making on the spray side. And finally, we have a new issue that's popping up, and mainly because of the dry situation we're seeing. Um, several cornfields have been infested with thrips, and, and usually this is a problem just on the lower leaves, but because they're so stressed in the dry conditions, it's throughout the plant. Um, I am suggesting that we may need to spray. There's no thresholds to follow, but if the plants continue to be stressed and the rain hasn't helped that field outgrow the injury or the infestation, um, then a spray may be warranted. And, and I'd encourage those to leave check strips to see if we can learn anything from this situation because really no one in North America um, has had a situation like this where corn, grain corn in particular is having a thrip issue like this. So, and please call me for further um, guidance if you do find that your, your field has these and is not outgrowing them. So with that, um, I, I wanna thank our sponsors for West, all the um, uh, collaborations and funds that we've received for the Western Bean research so far. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions that have come out. Hi, Tracy. Hi. Oh. Okay, <laughs> there we go. Um, so I have, I see one question that came in on the chat box there um, uh, in regards to Matador and its effect on all insects. Do you want to comment on that uh, and its use in Ontario? Yep, so um, Matador, most of these insecticides can affect um, some insects. Some are, are safer on the beneficials, for example, Corrigin and Delegate. Um, but that said, even Matador, their impact on beneficials can be short-lived depending on what beneficials present at the time. So especially ladybugs, they, they usually move in um, uh, shortly after again. Um, I will say all of these um, do have still some B risks, so you do need to follow label um, label statements regarding when to spray. It's always best to spray in the evening if possible to really avoid when bees may be foraging because even though they don't they don't help in terms of pollinating corn, they do find pollen corn pollen as a, a source um, 
occasionally when um, there's there's main wall-to-wall cornfields. So um, be aware of, of that situation. But in terms of efficacy, um, ground applications done, testing here at Ridgetown, there's really no significant difference in the, the different chemistries for Western bean control. Great, thanks. Um, and I have another question here. Uh, I'll just read it to you. Do the pheromones for field traps cost money to the farmer? And if so, how much? They do. Um, uh, you can get a package of 25 lures, which you only need about four or five a season for one trap. Um, they, they'll cost you um, any about, well, it depends on the company, but um, let's say $40. So you could, for $40, um, get, you know, four or five locations uh, worth of lures for a season. And they are, as long as you keep them in the freezer, you can actually use them for two years in a row. I wouldn't push it for three, but two years, um, they're, they're pretty adequate for, for what you need for um, um, monitoring for Western bean. And where could someone get those? Oh, okay. So trap supply information is right on that trap network. So cornpest.ca. Um, we have in the past and we still do have a few supplies of lures themselves here. If you, you know, only want to trap for a couple of, of locations, um, contact us and we may be able to give you um, the lures. The traps, though, you would have to buy yourself, but there is a, a supply list and where to go on that site. And I just have one last question here. Um, how can, so they just would like you to go over again how someone can get involved in the TRAP network. Oh, sure, let me just go back. How about I just put that there, right there. So um, when you go onto, uh, it's actually the Canadian Corn Pest Coalition website, but it's, um, we have the TRAP, the Western Bean TRAP network as well. Um, we've got how to enter traps, trapping instructions, um, where the schedule that we follow um, week to week as well. You can just click right here and say join the network and you can um, enter your trap locations and submit um, traps from the previous week's count um, by Wednesday every week and we will have the interactive maps updated. And we monitor this Gmail as well frequently too if you have any questions. Great, Tracy. Uh, thank you. That's all the questions I've had come in. So um, I just want to give you a thank you for your time and having a discussion. And um, if anyone else has any other questions, feel free to send them through and we can always address them later. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tracy. Um, so now we're going to have um, Jake Monroe from Wamafra speak. So Jake, if you can hear me, can you please unmute uh, your microphone and share your screen. Well, I'll keep going and again, cut in if there's too much feedback or you can't hear me well. No, we sound, uh, everything sounds great. So uh, go ahead. Thanks, Jake. Perfect. So we're going to talk about uh, emerging concepts in corn nitrogen management. And this is, I think, a really interesting concept. Um, and it, it's a really interesting topic because it's, it's, been, we've been learning a lot in the last number of years about you know, how, how to better manage nitrogen in corn and, uh, and, and we've got some great Ontario research that I'm going to profile uh, over the next 20 minutes or so. So a bit of an overview, I'm going to talk about some differences in nitrogen use efficiency in modern hybrids relative to older hybrids. Then shift into discussing the impact of precipitation on corn nitrogen response and not just with respect to potential for nitrogen loss, um, but we'll also talk about um, the demand side of things and plant uptake and the impact precipitation can have there. Talk about nitrogen uptake timing in, in modern hybrids as well, touch on the late end concept, and then we'll end by discussing some of the emerging strategies that are coming forward for, for maximizing your return on, on investment for nitrogen and end on building up the fill nitrogen bank and discuss some other uh, decision support tools and other strategies for, for, for helping to ensure good nitrogen supply for corn. So here's a graphic uh, showing basically what we've seen in terms of a, a trend for grain corn yield over the past number of decades and nitrogen application rates over that same time period. So as, 
as we all know, you know, corn yields have continued to increase in a linear fashion. Um, what, what you may not know is that uh, nitrogen rates to corn have plateaued over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, this is U.S. data. Trends are similar, you know, across North America. And so really the question is, you know, why? Um, what's going on where we're, we're able to continue to increase and push corn yields um, without continue, uh, continuing in the same fashion uh, and increasing nitrogen rates? So the first, first aspect here is improved application practices. Um, we're managing our nitrogen better, using the four hours, um, making sure that we're, we're matching um, timing better for crop demand, you know, tide dressing, um, using some you know, products that stabilize nitrogen products uh, in cases where we can't match that timing for logistical reasons. Um, and we've done a great job in, in uh, being more efficient with our nitrogen. But what I'm going to touch on here is the genetic component. Um, so we, on the breeding side, there's really been some gains made in terms of nitrogen use efficiency. And kind of the key aspects from my perspective are uh, lower uh, plant and grain nitrogen concentration in modern hybrids relative to older hybrids. Higher internal plant nitrogen use efficiency, which is basically just a fancy way of saying we're getting more bushels produced per amount of, of total plant nitrogen uptake. And finally, and this is an important one, we'll, we'll come back around to this in a few minutes, um, modern hybrids have improved tolerance to nitrogen stress, in particular later in the season. So simply put, modern hybrids can, can do more with less with respect to nitrogen. So here's a little bit of data uh, borrowed from Iowa State to, to back up some of the points that I just made. This is comparing a 1960s era hybrid to a 2000 era hybrid. And of course, you can see that, that large difference in yield, uh, 134 to 224, much, much higher yield potential in our modern hybrids. But what I want to point out is, is that bushels per pound of total plant nitrogen, that internal plant nitrogen use efficiency has gone up significantly and grain nitrogen concentration has gone down significantly. So bear that in mind as we kind of continue on. Uh, now, in terms of determining this, the right nitrogen rate, now of course we know there's no, there's, there's no right rate necessarily for a, for a given entire field because we have variability within that field. And we know also that nitrogen rates, optimal nitrogen rates may vary from year to year. But generally speaking, here are the, here are the different methods you know, that I could think of for, for determining what that right rate might be. So a yield goal approach, you know, a, a pound of nitrogen for every bushel of corn. Um, a, a fairly common approach, particularly in the, in the United States, um, you know, over the decades, um, recommended by, you know, state, uh, state recommendations, um, though they've started to move away from that approach in recent years. Um, nitrate or PSNT testing, um, certainly an approach that's been used with, with variable success, you know, throughout North America. Common practice, either for, for the grower's operation or, you know, common practice within the, within the neighborhood or the area, certainly is a, is a way of determining, you know, what rates apply. And we've also seen in recent years, weather-based decision support tools come on. Adapt then, um, out of the U.S. and circa, just a couple of examples of, of decision support tools that integrate weather information to model and predict potential for, for nitrogen loss and potential for mineralization and availability of, of nitrogen. We've got regional trial databases, you know, at the state level and in our case at the province level with uh, the Ontario Corn Nitrogen Calculator, which basically integrates nitrogen response uh, data from decades worth of trials done in the province and, and gives you a, a tweaked or personalized recommendation based on previous crop, soil type, corn price, nitrogen price, and a variety of other factors. And of course, on-farm trials are, are a great way to determine what might be that optimal or right rate of nitrogen. Um, uh, no better way than, than doing a, a trial on your farm to see how your soil is supplying nitrogen. So here's kind of in one image the reason why nitrogen is such a, a tricky nutrient to manage and to get, to get right. Um, it's very dynamic. 
It can be transformed in a variety of different ways in the soil as well as in the atmosphere. And it can be, it can be lost from the, from the soil environment several different ways. So when we're looking at nitrogen recommendation systems or decision support tools, what we're really looking at is, is a way of better understanding, one, the soil nitrogen supply and how that might vary from soil to soil based on texture, past management, and other factors. Um, we're looking at nitrogen losses and the potential for nitrogen loss, whether it's through leaching, potentially in a sandy soil, through denitrification, maybe on a, on a heavier textured soil, or uh, um, ammonia volatilization if we're using UAN or, or urea to supply nitrogen. And crop demand is another factor, of course, that, uh, that can't be overlooked. Um, and our, as, of course, as our, as our yields continue to rise, we have, uh, we have more nitrogen that's being taken up. But as I had mentioned already, we have uh, more efficiency with respect to that nitrogen uptake. So we're going to look at some specific data, and this is from Canada. Uh, this research here from Nicholas Tremblay from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada was, uh, was based out of trials in Quebec as well as Ohio. We're going to look at some of these studies and, and the impact that they've noted of precipitation on nitrogen response. I think it's kind of a timely discussion because of the really variable precipitation and overall kind of dry conditions we've had for the past three, four weeks in Ontario. Um, and the implications that it might have for, for optimal, the optimal rate of nitrogen and, and what we're going to see in the corn crop. So here's what Nicholas Tremblay has found. He um, found that abundant, what he's called abundant and well-distributed rainfall is a major driver of corn nitrogen response. So he looked not only at total rate rainfall over the growing season, but also looked at how evenly it was distributed. And that's that well-distributed factor in there. And he in particular focused in on that period just before and just after side dressing. So 30 days before side dressing, we're talking somewhere in June, uh, 15 days after side dressing, they found to be key in determining the response to nitrogen. And they found this to be a greater factor in fine textured, for example, clay loam soils, um, but it was still a factor in, in lighter textured and, and, uh, and loam soils. They also looked at crop heat unit accumulation and found that it does matter, but not nearly as much as rainfall. Um, in particular, crop heat units play a role in or medium textured soils, loams, um, but it actually and surprisingly really did not have an effect on uh, corn grown in fine textured soils. So this is this is research that's actually found its way into, into a commercial product. And this, uh, it was originally called SCAN. Some of you may have heard of that over the past couple of years. SCAN's been rebranded as Field Apex. And here's just a screenshot from, from their webpage. And they've really just recently uh, launched and made their, their product, their nitrogen recommendation decision support tool available. And I know that a number of uh, retailers and consultants in Ontario are using uh, or at least trialing out this, this product. So it's not only work in Quebec and Ohio that's, uh, that's found an impact of, of precipitation on optimal nitrogen rate. This is work from Dr. Bill Dean at the University of Guelph at the, uh, an ongoing uh, corn nitrogen response trial at Alora. And this shows data from 2009 to 2014. Uh, the trial is still going, so there's more recent data yet. And what you can see here is that the, the nitrogen, the most economic rate of nitrogen varies substantially from year to year. So this is a silt loam soil. Um, this is a soil that in, 20, in 2012, you know, um, had very little yield potential uh, due to dry conditions. Um, and you know, potentially as a result, had a, quite a low MERN value, just over 100 pounds per acre. Very next year, 2013, much more abundant rainfall, better growing conditions, and that most economic rate of nitrogen was over 200 pounds, and again, yield, yield was, uh, was much higher, almost double in that year. And so, at the university, uh, Dr. Dean and others are really focusing in on, again, that similar time period based on the work at Ag Canada, uh, mid-June to mid-July, 
and and finding that 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 period really does have an impact. So you can look at you know total growing season precipitation, but if you look at this time period and that accumulated rainfall in that mid June to mid July time period, it really uh, correlates well in this particular trial to the to the maximum economic rate of nitrogen at the end of the year. And so they've looked at the all the nitrogen response trials done at Alora from 2000 to 2017 and found that there's a relationship between greater amounts of rainfall in that time period and, and higher maximum economic rates of nitrogen. Um, interestingly, this relationship between precipitation and nitrogen actually wasn't as observed in data before 2000. So it's a bit of an open question as to the role of you know, uh, newer hybrids and, and differences in nitrogen uptake. And, and hopefully we, in coming years, we'll get some, some answers on what's going on there. Okay, so we've talked about some of the differences in terms of uh, nitrogen use efficiency, nitrogen uptake of modern hybrids versus older hybrids. We've looked at some of the pretty compelling data to show the impact that you know, early summer precipitation can have on nitrogen response, uh, both in, in uh, Quebec, Ohio, and Ontario. But what about this late nitrogen trend and, and how do they all relate to each other? There's been a lot of buzz about Y drops. Um, applying nitrogen later in the season, splitting multiple times is kind of the question is, and that I often get, is there anything to that? And, and is that something worth pursuing? So here's just a quick refresher on the percent of total nitrogen uptake for, for grain corn throughout the season and, uh, and the timing of that uptake. So, Again, right now we're in that period of rapid nitrogen uptake on many, many fields. Some just about to hit it, uh, where we, where we, are. the corn is rapidly taking up nitrogen until it tassels, hits reproductive stages, and at that point we've got uh, remobilization of nitrogen from plant tissue going towards grain, and then we continue to have some nitrogen being taken up from the soil. We've also got some changes in, up, in uptake timing with our modern hybrids. We know that newer hybrids take up a greater proportion of their total nitrogen following milking. That's not a huge change, but it's 6% more consistently, 36% um, versus 30% in older hybrids. A larger percentage of grain nitrogen in, in these newer hybrids is coming from this uptake after silking compared to remobilization. So again, uh, not a massive difference, but an important one to keep in mind. And what I think is kind of the neatest aspect and potentially most important is that as nitrogen stress increases, uh, newer hybrids are able to increase that uptake after silking. And this is something that older hybrids weren't able to do. They're nitrogen stressed, um, you know, right up until uh, silking. They've kind of got what they've got and they're not able to, you know, uh, move into another gear and increase uptake from the soil, they're, they're stuck with what they have in the plant tissue to a larger extent. So just to look at it visually, here's what we typically think of in terms of remobilized nitrogen compared to plant uptake from the soil following, following uh, tasseling and silking. So remobilization plays a more important role. And it still does, but this is an example of, of kind of the shift that we've seen with modern hybrids. And I'll just go back for it again. This is just a, a quick, simple visual illustration of what we're seeing. We're tending to see a little bit more uptake and the flexibility of modern hybrids to respond to stresses, nitrogen stress, and be able to take up a bit more nitrogen uh, after silking. So what does this mean for delayed nitrogen applications and the, and the potential yield impacts withholding some of that nitrogen, some of that total balance of nitrogen to later in the season. There's been work done at Purdue by Tony Vine looking at this, this question. He's dedicated quite a bit of time recently to it. And 2014 to 16, they found that delaying the last 40 pounds of then to the V12 stage did not negatively impact yield at all. Again, allowed you to see more of the season, growing conditions, yield potential, and apply the balance later. University of Guelph, graduate student of Bill Dean in 2017, applied pre-plant nitrogen at a rate of only 70 pounds, and the balance was applied as, at V13. He found that, that those plots you know, replicated four times, yielded the exact same 
as an all upfront application. That trial is being repeated this summer and they're, they're hoping to see what, uh, if, if they get consistent results. But that's quite astonishing that you can, you can apply such a small amount upfront and leave the balance to that late vegetative growth and still, uh, still maintain uh, full yield. Eastern Ontario um, Soil and Crop Tier 2 project over the past few years looked at this question of late nitrogen. They wanted to see if you could Im increase yield by taking a portion of that nitrogen and again, like the other studies, applying it later in the season. In 2016, they found no yield difference through the late end uh, across quite a few sites. In 2017, however, late nitrogen increased yield modestly at some of their sites and that was largely they believe due to the very wet conditions they had in the summer of 2017 and, and, and nitrogen losses um, throughout June and early July. So at the end of the day with delayed nitrogen, I'm not, uh, well, from what I'm showing you, what you're seeing, you know, the message from my perspective is not that uh, you're going to knock things out of the park by using Y drops or applying nitrogen late into the season compared to normal side dress timing. But what it does give you the opportunity for is to see more of that season. If you are able to apply some of your nitrogen later, you're able to see what's happened in terms of precipitation, uh, yield potential, and adjust your, your, your final rate accordingly. So to put it together, uh, modern hybrids use nitrogen more efficiently and take up slightly more nitrogen later in the season. And that is that efficiency uh, that explains the reason why, although we've continued to increase yields in corn production, uh, we haven't seen that you know straight linear line in nitrogen application rates follow suit. And that's a good that's good news for us because because that means and for growers because it means more profitable production. Um, early summer precipitation appears to affect nitrogen response year to year, and it's this year to year variation that we really I think is the next um, concept to get a handle on because it, it really can change what might have been in the past a static rate um, and, and, and have meant that there were under application or over application from year to year and we can potentially fine tune that with better data. A late season split application potentially might be an opportunity for a more, a more informed nitrogen rate decision. And as we learn more about the effects of withholding nitrogen and, and applying it a bit later in the season, I think there really may be a, a chance for you know, applying a modest portion up front and then going in later in the season and, and making a, a better decision on what that might, right rate might be. I mentioned I'd, I'd come back around and discuss you know, building up the cell nitrogen bank. So I, I never want to discuss you know, nutrient management or nitrogen uh, best practices without discussing soils and, and soil management and the impact that that has on nitrogen response. In, in Ridge, from Ridgetown data, the, the image that you can see with uh, the small plots at Ridgetown, the long-term tillage rotation system trial, uh, we know very clearly that having wheat as part of a corn-soybean rotation uh, helps to lower the MERN value or the maximum economic rate of nitrogen, um, not because that wheat is, is, is fixing nitrogen um, or, or bringing new nitrogen into the system, um, but because it's improving soil conditions, helping to build organic matter over time, and we know that that MERN value gets dropped over time with wheat in the rotation. Um, organic amendments, manure, though not available to everyone, more and more products are coming available, and we, I think we should really look at these products as ways to not only help um, you know, supply nutrients, but to help supply organic matter, uh, micronutrients, secondary nutrients like sulfur that are receiving a lot more attention because of deficiencies, um, and, and finally, we, I think there's a great opportunity to use cover crops better and strategically to help, again, build that cell nitrogen bank, but also help soak up what's there at the end of the season as well. And it's not always a perfect fit, but here you've got an example of a grower in Brant County using cereal rye after, after corn harvest, broadcast the rye, works it in lightly um, with some vertical tillage, and, uh, and gets some pretty decent growth uh, by springtime, and that helps to helps to soak up some of that nitrogen that might, that might otherwise uh, be vulnerable to leaching and, uh, and slowly over time helps to build organic matter. 
And finally, on the right, you've got an image of uh, a grower in Lambton County who's, who's uh, using hairy vetch. Uh, not the most common of cover crops, one that should be used carefully, but one that uh, he's used quite successfully to supply nitrogen to corn. And there's research at Harrow, um, Ag Canada is doing research looking at hairy vetch and crimson clover as alternatives to red clover in situations where you have a hard time getting establishment. And, uh, and the early work in, in a very warm climate, with many lots of growing time in the fall, the early work has been pretty promising in terms of uh, some of those alternative legumes to provide nitrogen. And finally, uh, just a reminder of the decision support tools that are available here in Ontario. Uh, really the, the big one that I'd recommend if you don't already use it, at least using it as a baseline or, or an initial reference would be the Ontario Corn Nitrogen Calculator. Um, uh, it's available online as an, as, a, as an Excel file or as an app. Um, and here's a screenshot of the app. You, again, you can use it to get a kind of a ballpark figure of where, you, where you're sitting with respect to an optimal nitrogen rate based on you know, decades worth of Ontario research and uh, considering soil texture, previous crop, and other factors. We've got also the what's called the N-rate evalu evaluator, um, which allows you to do on-farm trials or strips or even blocks. And basically all you need for that is a, a very low rate, 30 pounds uh, per acre or less, and, and the associated yield, and a high rate, you know, add 30 pounds to your, your typical nitrogen rate, and it uses what's called the delta yield approach to provide a, an estimate of MERN. There's also the P an updated uh, PSNP table. It's in the new publication 811, the Agronomy Guide for Field Crops. And if you or, or the growers that you advise have uh, manure in the system, absolutely, it's uh, I think essential to have you know, uh, regular sampling of that manure to know what's there, uh, what the breakdown is in terms of uh, organic versus ammonium. And uh, the manure nutrient calculator is a, a great tool to use. Okay, so with that, uh, I'm happy to take any questions that might have come up during the talk. Uh, thanks, Jake. Um, so I had a few questions just come into the chat box. And as a reminder to anyone, feel free while we're chatting, to, you can still send some more in. Um, so the first one is, what are your thoughts on nitrification inhibitors? Great question. Um, I think nitrification inhibitors, um, and, and you can feel free, whoever asked the question, to type in the text box if you can clarify a little bit more, but um, I think there's been some good evidence to show that in certain circumstances, urease inhibitors, for example, agritane, in addition with uh, nitrification inhibitors can be pretty effective. But my kind of main message on that is that it really depends on how you're currently applying your nitrogen. If you're applying a small amount up front and then coming in and, and, uh, and side dressing nitrogen, either injecting or, uh, or or uh, spinning on urea, for example, nitrification inhibitors um, with that later or side dress timing, uh, I don't necessarily think are a good fit. With an all up front application and particularly on lighter textured soils, I think nitrification inhibitors uh, certainly have a role to play there. Thank you. Uh, and I have one last question here that came through, um, and it's asking whether you're testing a nitrogen application using precision agriculture tools. Yeah, so personally, I, I, don't, have, uh, I don't have trials out looking uh, from a precision agriculture standpoint. I know that uh, Dr. Dean at the University of Guelph is, is looking to use precision agriculture tools to kind of take that nitrogen work to the next to the next level and, and, uh, and to be able to really do the, do the nitrogen response work in a way that, that uh, will allow collection of a large amount of data. So using that delta yield approach and, and working within management zones to, uh, you know, to compare yields at low and high rates of nitrogen uh, is the direction that he's going. Um, personally, I don't have a lot of experience uh, with looking at nitrogen response within a precision ag context. All right, well, I think that's all for questions. And we just want to say a thanks to both Jake and to Tracy for taking time out of their day to uh, participate and, and really share some of the work that they've been doing. Um, at this time, I'm going to share back share my screen. 
Um, so Jake, if you don't mind, uh, stop sharing. I'm going to just share um, a last slide from, from ours. And just a second here. So for everyone that is looking to uh, claim the CEU credits, we've posted a QR code on the screen. So if you want to scan that, uh, there will also be an email that will be coming through um, with the final survey, and that will also allow you opportunity to claim the CEU credits. Uh, we very much appreciate the feedback as uh, mentioned earlier. So um, please put forth your your responses and, and provide any information that uh, would be of interest to you to future webinars. Again, I want to thank our speakers and thank you for our participants. And we're going to sign out and the webinar will be posted in the next week or so um, if your colleagues are interested in viewing this webinar. So thanks again, everyone, and have a great day.